Amen. You know, if you're going to have a story, stick to it, right? <laughs> Anybody relate to those videos, especially parents? Ever caught your kids in that kind of stuff? Where, I, you know, you gotta, gotta admire his dedication, right? He was not moving off that story, regardless of what was on his face. But here's the other side of this question, which as parents, we know the frustration of that moment where you're just wanting to kind of take your kid and go, don't lie, don't lie, don't lie, you know? And, but the question takes a little bit of a turn when it says, have we been the kid in the video? Have we been the one in the video on the opposite end where people have asked us something and, they, and we maybe we knew deep down inside, we knew we've done something wrong. We've been, we, we have no leg to stand on at all and we just dig our heels in and absolutely refuse to acknowledge it or own it. Anybody willing to say, oh, I've done that before? Oh yeah, okay, at least we're honest. Now we don't like that question in the South, we call this meddling. And so we don't like people to meddle, you know, in our lives. But that's where we're going to turn our attention. In the prayer guide, Amy led us through today, the prayer of confession. And as we're in this series called, Are You There, God? Just talking about this idea of prayer. And Amy talked last week about this idea. She said, you know, we need to be people who are willing to lean into prayer even when life is hard. Even when sometimes praying is hard, we need to be willing to lean into that. And today, I want to build on that. I want us to look at this idea of leaning into prayer even and especially when we screw up. Because I don't know about you, but I have a long list of ways that I screw up just about every day, and I need this. I need this in my life. But I wanna ask you first, what comes to your mind when you hear the word confession? Don't be shy, what was that blessing? Yeah, priest. priest, you said a priest? Yeah, okay, we have that idea of the Catholic Church and you go sit in a little room and you know, yeah. Criminal. Okay. There we go. Somebody in the legal system there, right? Or at least a lawyer. Yeah. What else? Letting out a dark secret. Letting out a dark secret. Yes. What's that now? Admitting guilt. Admitting guilt. Does anybody have like pleasant thoughts around this? <laughs> Confessions that you hear on TV. Yeah. 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 But typically... None of us approach this subject and go, yeah, love it. It's amazing. Great thing. I mean, most everything, if not everything we just heard was negative. It was like, yeah, letting out a dark secret, which includes some guilt and shame or having to stand up in front of people and talk to them about it. Yeah. So why is that? And that's what we want to kind of dig into today is let's talk about confession. What is it? Why we do it? What's the problems with it? What keeps us from doing it? You know, how important is it? In, in our lives even, especially when it comes to prayer. And what I want us to look at is as prayers of confession and see how even a misunderstanding of God can lead us to a place that away from confession and even hindrances to our prayers because of the things we not, we're not confessing. But also we wanna look at how do we overcome these things? How do we get beyond this, get to a place where confession is just as natural as breathing and because that's where we find forgiveness, that's where we find restoration and that's where we find communion, beautiful communion with God. And so to help us understand confession, we turn our attention this morning to a fun little story in the Bible about King David. 
Okay, so buckle up. I get to tell you a story today. And uh, if you've been around church, you know King David. You've heard about King David, most likely. He is the most discussed. He's the most written about king in the Old Testament, even before his life as king. We know a little bit about him. You know, he's credited with writing about 73 of the Psalms that we have in the Old Testament. You know, that's the Jewish songbook. And so he wrote a you know, almost half of those. So he's, you know, kind of a big name when it comes to the Bible. And even as you read about him, there's places in the Bible where it says this, that David was a man after God's own heart. But what we read about or what we talk about today may lead you to say, how did that happen? How did he actually get there? How could those words be used to describe him? Because David's story is actually a story fit for Hollywood. It really is. It's, it's uh, famous people, power, sex, adultery, rape, to cover, a cover-up, murder, a man of honor, a man willing to do anything to get rid of his problem. I mean, it's right out of Hollywood. So if you want to read the story, you can, all, you can go to 2 Samuel chapter 11. That's where we have it told. But let me just give you the, the, the Brent Notes version of this story. David's not where he's supposed to be. It says in the time when kings would go out to war, David decided to stay home. Not necessarily anything wrong with that, but there he is. And one day he decides to go out for a walk on his roof. Again, nothing wrong with this. It's what he could do. It's his building. It's his roof. Take a walk. But while he's up there, he sees this woman on an opposite roof, and she's bathing. And she's not doing anything wrong either, just so you know. This was a normal practice for her. She's not like trying to get the king's attention and woo him or anything. She's purifying herself after menstruation. It's what was required of women at the time. You, you had your monthly cycle. You had to go into the bath afterwards and, and purify yourself. Otherwise, you were considered unclean. That was just the law. I know. Good times, women. So this is what she was doing. But as David's taking a walk on his roof, he looks over and he sees this woman and he, you know, she catches his eye. And I realize if you come like me from a purity culture mindset, you want to immediately start placing blame on Bathsheba. What is she doing bathing on the roof? As I said, she's doing what she's normally doing. She's doing what was expected of her. It's not her fault, just so you know. David, as a man, takes longer look than he should. Again, purity culture that I grew up in said, but he couldn't help himself. Can we please move beyond that? Beyond the idea that men have no self-control and are just pigs and animals and have, you know, all this. Let's just move beyond that. He should not have looked. He should have turned his eyes. He should have gone back inside. There's a million things David should have done. So the responsibility is completely on him. But instead of turning away, you know what he did? He said to himself, I like that. I want that. I'm the king, I can get that. And he does. He sends somebody over there to her. He br they bring her to his house and he decides to sleep with her, to have sex with her. And uh, now today we understand power dynamics and relationships and all this kind of stuff. And we understand that could a woman at that time deny the king? No, not at all. The king wants you sex with you. Guess what you do? You have sex with the king. Now the problem is, is Bathsheba's married. Didn't matter. The king wanted to have sex with her, so he did. So they, they do this. Time, a little time passes, and then what happens? The dun-dun-dun. She sends a message to him and says, King David, guess what? I'm pregnant. And her husband, who is a valiant man, a man of valor, a man of honor, his name's Uriah, he's off at war where David should have been. So David begins to hatch this plan. I got a problem I need to take care of. So what am I going to do? I'm going to get Uriah to come home 
and we'll just, hey, guess what? You've been granted some leave. Go home. Enjoy your wife. Because why? Because if I can get Uriah to sleep with Bathsheba, he'll think it's his problem solved. Except there was a bigger problem. Uriah was a man of honor. And when he gets home, he refuses to go home. And he sleeps outside at the city gate. And David's like, dude, what's up? Why are you, why are you sleeping outside? You got a bed and a beautiful wife. Go, enjoy yourself. And Uriah's like, how can I go home? My men are out fighting. I can't do that. So David's, you know, kind of scratching his head. And he's like, okay, this isn't going well. So he says, all right, I know what I'll do. I'll get him drunk. Because when he's drunk, he'll have no sense of what he's doing. He'll go home. He'll sleep with his wife. Problem solved. But again, even in a drunken state, Uriah would not do what David wanted him to do. He still wouldn't go home, sleep with his wife. So David does probably, I guess, what the next step is. I don't know how you make this leap. I don't know how you get from there, get him drunk, to get him killed. But that's what he did. David says the next step is he's got to die. And as king, nobody can deny the king. So he, he sends him back, and he writes a little note to the commander, and he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to push forward, and then when the fighting gets rough, I want you to pull everybody back but Uriah and just leave him there. And here's the, here's the craziest part of this story. There's a lot of crazy parts, but this is crazy to me. David hands the note to Uriah, and Uriah essentially takes his death sentence back to the commander hands it to him, and that's exactly what happens. Uriah is left out in the front, the rest of the army retreats, and Uriah is dead. And David thinks, whew, all right, problem solved. And after her period of mourning, he brings Bathsheba in, he officially marries her, and life is good, right? No problem. Until there's a man named Nathan. He's a prophet of God, a mouthpiece for God. And he's, you get the idea, he's spoken with uh, David before. This is a relationship that they have. And Uriah, or excuse me, Nathan comes in and he says, Nathan, I got a story to tell you. And David's like, what's the story? And he goes, man, there's these two guys. There's a rich guy and a poor guy. And the rich guy owns thousands of sheep and cattle. He's got it all. The poor guy has one little lamb. And he loves that lamb. He treats that lamb like family. That lamb eats from his table. He brushes that lamb's hair. It's like a daughter to him. That man, that, this poor guy loves this lamb more than anything. But one day the rich guy has company and he needs food. And you know what the rich guy does? He goes and he takes the lamb from the poor guy and he kills it and he serves it to his guest. And of course, David's listening to this story. You got to give it up for a good storyteller, right? I mean, you got to give it up to somebody that can get you emotionally invested in it. And David's there. He's right there and he's like, what, what, what? That man needs to die. And then Nathan, oh, and then you got to love a turn because Nathan just goes, you are that man. Now, think about that moment. What's amazing to me in this story is that up till this point, David, not really feeling a lot of guilt or shame that we know of. The scripture doesn't tell us about it. In this moment, this is the first moment he is confronted face to face with his sin. And he realizes what he's done. He realizes the depths of the sin that he has done. And he confesses to Nathan and he says this. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. And this is the backdrop to a beautiful prayer that David wrote that we have in Psalm chapter 51. There are seven Psalms of repentance in the Bible, and I think this could arguably, arguably be said is the greatest. 
Let's look at what David wrote after confronted with this incredible sin. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, and you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a clean heart, a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will, not, that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, God, you will not despise. Wow. That's heavy. That is beautiful. That is a man who is face to face with his own failure, his own despicable sin before God. I mean, can you imagine the heart behind such a prayer? I mean, I look at David and I think, wow, that is, that is incredible. And I think to myself sometimes, I wish I could pray prayers like that. I wish I could be that open about my failures, my shortcomings, my sin. Anybody else feel like that sometimes? Why can't we? Why does confession carry such a negative cloud over it? Why do we resist it sometimes? Why don't we, when we realize what we've done, lean into that? I think it's because we have a few problems with confession. Problems that we have to overcome. <laughs> I came up with six. How's that? I think we don't understand what confession is. I think you said it, blessing. We think it's that confession booth, and we step in and we say, forgive me, Father, for I've sinned. It's been 28 days since my last confession. And when you're done, you give, you're given a few prayers to pray, some penance to atone for your wrongdoing, and that's it. And we misunderstand that your confession, I don't need your confession. Confession goes up to God. Or maybe you think back to the good old days in the Middle Ages of indulgences. Anybody remember that from history class? I mean, I'm not opposed to that. You want forgiveness, let's give some money. We can build some buildings. Things are good, right? I'm just kidding. I mean, that's kind of how it was. It's like, what do I need to do to get off? What do I need to do to get out of this? 
And in the Middle Ages, they figured it out. They said, well, if you do this sin, it's this price. You pay this price and you move on. It's all good. But that's not truly how, how it works, is it? We know that. Another problem is we might have is anybody ever been to a church before where somebody sinned and they had to get up in front of everyone and confess their sin? Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? But confession becomes difficult because we see things like that. We see ostracism. We see, you know, people shaming you and guilting you and turning their back on you for what you've done. Instead of being restored, you see yourself rejected. We assume confession means humiliating ourselves. And let's be fair, there is a bit of humility that comes along with this. We have to be willing to own what we've done. But there's a difference between being humble and, be, and humiliating ourselves. Um, so to avoid that humiliation, the possible loss of community, we just sometimes keep it to ourselves. We carry over this idea too with fear of consequences and not just that, but a fear of, of how we view God. Do you realize that how you view God probably impacts how you confess more than anything else? I mean, if you grew up where God was a vengeful God, a wrathful God, just waiting to strike you with lightning anytime you screwed up, confession's probably not going to be on the top of your list, is it? Wouldn't be mine. And so if we see God that way as an angry dad with a belt out, yeah, we're, we're going to avoid confession. So we put that mask on. We do everything in our power to keep our failures hidden. So fear keeps us from confessing. Philip Yancey, the author, writes this. He says, my image of God more than anything else determines my degree of honesty in prayer. I love that quote. I think that's very accurate. And here's the rub with this. Hidden sin destroys us. And I think sometimes we don't understand that. I think we minimize sin. We minimize it and say, it's not that big a deal. I messed up. It's a mistake instead of seeing it as a sin, as an affront against God. I mean, alcohol, even in Alcoholics Anonymous, there's a well-known expression that says, we're only as sick as our secrets. That's true, isn't it? Yeah. And then not only that, I think we talked about humility, but pride misunderstanding sin, pride, and, and those things will keep us from actually taking that step to becoming people of confession. I remember watching a video a few years ago of a young woman. She was talking about sin even. She wasn't a follower of Jesus, and she made this statement. She said, I don't need anyone to bear the burden of my sin. I can do that on my own. And boy, that really puts us in the place of Jesus, doesn't it, to think we can do that. Yeah. Is there anything more humbling than confession? It requires vulnerability to let our guard down, to lower our defenses, to present ourselves 100% the real you fully before God. But that's what's so amazing about this is we're presenting ourselves bare to a God who already knows you and already loves you anyway. <laughs> and we have to be willing to get rid of these problems and say, okay, there's got to be something greater, better to this confession thing. So what is it? So what I find fascinating about confession as a part of praying is that if you look at the Bible, before they understood psychology the way we do, before they understood physiology the way we do, they knew that secrets or hiding things or keeping unconfessed sin would damage us, would have a lot of impact on us mentally, 
physically, emotionally, relationally, spiritually, keeping these things inside will destroy us. How do I know? Because we go back to another Psalm that David wrote. And this one was probably written after he had a little bit more time to reflect on Psalm 51 and his big sin. So it's Psalm 32. And listen to what David writes here. He says, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and in whose spirit is no deceit. Man, catch this next one. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Anybody been there before? Anybody had the thing that hold, you know, you feel inside that burden that comes with it, the side, nice little side effects that we get to called guilt and shame. And these fun little things that are in our lives, they begin to destroy us. And, you know, one of the other misconceptions I think we have of God is we think, oh, well, if I confess, this is to appease the wrath of the angry God. But confession isn't about trying to stay on God's good side. That's not what it's about. It's about reconciliation. It's about restoration. It's, it helps us remember our place in the world, that there is a God and we're not him. And we've all had that moment in a relationship where we've done something stupid. Can I get any head nods on that one? Okay, just checking. I just thought maybe it was me there for a moment. I just, you know. No, we've all said or done something foolish or stupid, something we knew was wrong, something we wish we could take back, possibly hurtful. And then what happened as a result of that in that relationship? Brokenness, right? You try to, you stop talking. You begin to try to avoid each other. You begin to kind of pull away. The relationship is not there. Keeping things hidden will eat away at us. They'll eat away at us physically. They'll eat away at us in all ways, and they will destroy relationships. And just like that happens between us here with physical human relationships, the same can be said of our relationship with God. But Psalm 32 goes on. Listen to what David says next. When we confess... Verse five says this, then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you beat me up and punched me down and made me really regret what I had done. <laughs> no, that's not what it says, is it? What's it say? And you, what's the word? Forgave. There is something about God that is amazing. That even a man who did some of the most heinous things, let's just be fair. If David had done what he did and was candidating at this church to be pastor, we would not consider him. Yeah. Would we? No. no. Cast out. No, your past is too bad. And yet something miraculous happened within David where he said, I confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. I don't know about you, but that's a pretty cool thing. Yeah. What's interesting is if you go back and read Psalm 51 again that we read earlier, David uses about four words to describe sin. He talks about my transgressions, my iniquity, my sin, all these things, evil I've done in your sight. Anyone care to guess how many words are used to illustrate in Psalm 51 God's forgiveness? 
19. Eugene Peterson, the, he's the late pastor and writer now, but he did a study and he said this. He says, the central action in Psalm 51 is carried by 19 different verbs used to invoke or declare God's action of forgiveness and restoration. We have a finite number of ways to sin, but God has an infinite number of ways to forgive. Isn't that beautiful? Anybody need to hear that today? You see, confession opens up this beautiful world of forgiveness where we find God's grace and his mercies new every morning. Don't believe that? These two verses, let's go on. What about 1 John 1, 9, where, G, where John says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will, what? Forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. What about James 5? Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray to each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Or even John 8, 11. In this beautiful story of a woman caught in the midst of sin, they drag her out, probably scantily dressed or even naked, before a crowd of men who pick up their rocks to begin to stone her for adultery. But we'll talk later about the guy who completely evidently gets out of the penalty. But everybody's there to stone her for her sin. And Jesus looks at her and says what? Then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. You see, this is what happens when the things we would prefer to keep in darkness we bring to light. This is what happens. You see, as long as we keep things in the darkness, things can grow. Things can fester. Things can take over. Things can destroy. But the moment we bring them into the light, they lose their power. They lose their control. They lose all that because in the light is where we begin to find forgiveness. It's where we find freedom. In the light is where we find life. And you know why I know this? Because it's what I know about confession. You see, because confession isn't punitive, it's pardoning. Confession isn't vindictive, it's vindicating. But confession isn't rejection, it is reconciling. That's what confession is all about. And what I don't want us to miss is that confession isn't just lip service. If we think confession is just, forgive me God for I have sinned and I will not do it again and then you go out, then we misunderstand grace. We misunderstand mercy because all that is is lip service. What we're calling people to, what we're called to is confession that transforms. You see, as I think about Psalm 51, as I think about that moment David is standing there with Nathan, David had some choices, didn't he? I mean, he didn't have to run right to confession to be fair, I don't know that Brent would have run right to confession. You are that man. Well, no, 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 no. Hold on. Hold on. That really wasn't me. I'm like the kid with the sprinkles, right? No, no, it wasn't me. It wasn't me. That would be my first reaction. And he's like, but David, I know it was you. Yeah, but let me give you three reasons why I did it and why it's justified. I would become very defensive and I would give you all the reasons why it was okay. But David doesn't do that. He's truly remorseful. He's tore up. And there's a genuine heart change him in him over what he's done. And that's because confession and repentance go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. 
And confession without repentance is just trying to appease our conscience. Confession can't just be make me feel better about my sin. It should be a public step towards abandoning, abandoning it. Because when we truly repent, it breaks the cycle of sin and guilt. And if all we're trying to do is make ourselves feel better, bargaining with God to avoid the consequences of what we've done, all we're doing is setting ourselves up to repeat the past. And this is where the real miracle happens. Let me share another psalm with you, Psalm 103. Look at how they describe this. It says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. Who wants to experience that today? I was reading this week, just in my normal Bible reading through the week, and I was picked up and and read Isaiah chapter 6. Kind of an interesting passage. Isaiah is a prophet, and he has a vision. And in this vision, he, well, it says, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. He sees the angels, and he hears the angels singing around the throne, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And do you know what his response was? While he's standing there seeing God, it's not, hey, what's up, God? He says, woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. When standing in the presence of God, he realized just how amazing and holy God is and how unholy he was. But you know what happened next? Do you know what happened in that next moment? God didn't look at him and say, you're right, you sinful piece of trash, get out of here. (laughs) We read next, it says, Then one of the angels flew to me with a coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar. And with it, he touched my mouth and he said, See, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. You see, there's a paradox that happens in confession. See, when we come face to face with God, we see and understand the holiness of God. And really, that should be a thing that makes us turn around and run the other way and say, get me out of here. But the paradox of confession says that what should repel us actually draws us in. Instead of running the other way, we run right into the welcoming embrace of God. How do we explain that? How do we understand that? How do we get there to understand? Well, the reason is, is because we understand who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And what's interesting is as we mature in faith, we don't find that we confess less. We actually find that we confess more. We don't look at ourselves and go, I'm so much better. No, we look and we say, oh no, I need more confession. And I read this week, it talked about churches, a community, a maturing community of faith said isn't a church without sin, but is a church without secrets. And I thought that was good. You see, keeping things hidden, not incorporating a regular pattern of confession, it's going to impact us physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. It's just the way we're made. 
And when we find forgiveness, the amazing thing is we will find ourselves forgiving more. We didn't have time to delve into that today, maybe next time. But don't miss this. David needed help. David, to our knowledge, did not realize where he was, what he had done, or the depths of his sin. He needed his buddy Nathan to come point it out to him. And sometimes we do too. Sometimes we need people that we trust to step in to help us. And this takes extreme vulnerability. Why do we do this? Well, as I read this week, because if we don't confess, we don't get to live the way that we were made to live, to do what we were made to do, and that is love, to love God and love others. I asked my message team this week, I said, so could we ask this question, does confessing, does not confessing keep us from experiencing God's forgiveness and mercy? And as we discussed it, we came to the conclusion, yes, but not in the way we may think. We hear that question and we immediately think, well, that's because God is mad at us and pushing us away. And really, it's not. It's self-inflicted. Yeah. It's us pushing, pushing God away, yeah. refusing what he's offering us. So we take that difficult step like David and we pray things like this. Search me, O God. Reveal any wickedness within me. I acknowledge my sin. I confess my transgressions. Cleanse me. Wash me. Create in me a clean heart. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And when we do, guess what? It's there we experience the forgiveness of God. Let's pray.